Okay, so today's Bible bit is going to be on Luke 4, 1 to 13, looking at Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all of their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Thank you, Anna. That was great. So, yeah, as I said, today we're going to be looking at that passage, but less so focusing on the passage specifically and more just looking at the wilderness and what that kind of means in this context. So as many of you will be aware, the UK is starting to kind of ease back on um, lockdown measures after a hundred plus days of lockdown. And this lockdown's brought both good and bad things. You know, you've had holidays postponed, exams cancelled, but it's also given, you know, a chance to see nature and kind of the outside world in a different perspective. I'm not sure how you guys found it, but I found when we were only allowed, you know, one hour of exercise per day, everything just seemed more vibrant. Like the sky seems bluer, you kind of pick up on the bird song a bit more. And that's probably also due to, you know, decreased pollution. The air is actually fresher. And through this, you know, maybe we can hope that the sky might stay like that. You know, the kind of pollution levels may stay dropped. Obviously, this is influenced by, you know, the leaders, the governments, but also the personal choices we can make. Like this could genuinely be a time to start a new beginning as the human race. And this kind of excitement and anticipation of the unknown, you can see it here in chapter four of Luke. It's full of anticipation and excitement. You know, if we're just looking, looking back to the previous verse, verse three, uh, we're looking at Jesus's baptism and that, you know, it's almost like a coronation ceremony. God just spoke to the people through the sky, through a dove and it's basically just like look this is my son and this event you know jesus in the wilderness is told in all the gospels but we're just gonna have a brief look at mark and mark's gospel actually opens with this event and it starts straight where luke 3 kind of starts off but he actually opens in verse 1 with the beginning of the good news about jesus the messiah the son of god and i just wanted to look at the word beginning and just kind of look at what that means to everyone what kind of like connotations does that bring um yeah what do you guys think the start i don't know yeah yeah so kind of like you know fresh fresh start and, start something know, new yeah start something new exactly kind of a chance to maybe go from something that's been and then go to something better or go from nothingness to something and that idea of a new beginning is actually seen throughout the bible 
but especially in two key places. So the first, Genesis 1, with the creation of the earth, God creating human life. But then also we see it again in the Gospels with Jesus's life. And what the Gospel writers are saying is that Jesus's life was just as significant as the creation of the earth. So now looking at geography a bit. So obviously this all happened somewhere. And you'd imagine that, you know, if it's so important, surely it would happen in a great capital city. But in reality, this is actually taking place not in a city centre, not in the heart of political power, but in the wilderness. So if you've got the Sea of Galilee up here, kind of shaped like this, and then that flows into the Dead Sea, which is here, and then you've got Jerusalem about here, and we're basically in this region called Qumran, which is a wilderness region just northwest of the Dead Sea. And this, yeah, this is where Luke 4 takes place. So it's completely contrasting to, you know, any preconceptions that we might have about, you know, about a great saviour of the world, like where he would kind of maybe start his ministry. So jumping back to Genesis 1, the earth was a wilderness. It was formless and completely void of all life. It says in verse 2 of Genesis 1 that the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And we can see as chapter 1 develops that, you know, God started with this wilderness and out of this wilderness, he created the Garden of Eden. And this whole idea of wilderness to garden, wilderness to life is seen throughout the Bible. And it's almost like, you know, God is in the business of bringing life out of places where there is none, out of this wilderness. And if we look into the New Testament, we can see that God is actually sending his messenger, his son, to lead us to salvation out of the wilderness and into the garden. So we looked at that last week with John the Baptist talking about how Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecies. So we've got this idea of an exodus, if you will, um, of us being taken out of a place into a new and better place. This idea really that God came to lead us from that place of wilderness to life and to a garden. It's also worth noting, though, that this wilderness is not an accidental place. I'm sure that you know many of you will have or may even be at the moment experiencing times where times that are hard, times where everything feels like it's all a bit overwhelming. But it's not it's not as if, you know, God has just stumbled upon people in the middle of nowhere. If you actually kind of look into the idea of, quote, a wilderness experience, it's a place where God takes us as an act of love to restore us and replenish us. You know, when we're in this wilderness, our eyes can refocus and our soul can regain perspective on the things that are truly important. The wilderness is actually our friend. Ronnie Chang, a comedian, talks about how every night we have this competition in households to try and fit the greatest number of screens between us and the wall. You know, we've got phone, laptop, iPad, TV. We're basically just trying to cram them above, below, left, right, so that we don't miss a single thing. So we can avoid that, you know, fear of missing out. But this idea of filling our lives with things that we make, things that we choose, it kind of warps the perspective of how everything looks in our lives. It shifts the focus from other things to us. And it basically makes our lives orbit around us rather than around God. And this, as I said, can make us seem very big in our minds 
and actually make God our creator, the creator of the heavens and the earth, very small. So in reality, God takes us into the wilderness to expand our view, if you will, to see the vastness of his creation and refocus our hearts, refocus our minds on the things that are truly important. It's almost like walking out uh, in the middle of the night and looking up and just seeing a completely clear sky with stars as far as the eye can see. We're almost taken into that moment so that we can refocus and rebuild things that may once have been lost. And while wilderness experiences are quite popular, you know, they're almost like tourist destinations. I'm sure many of you have maybe been on holidays where you go to a remote place to just get away from, I mean, not currently, obviously, but um, get away from the hustle and bustle of everyday life and just kind of get to that place where you can relax. But in reality, God has more in mind for us than just, say, a trip to the desert, a trip to the mountains. He actually wants to perform life-changing works through that time. I remember two instances where I've experienced such a kind of wilderness experience, I guess. The first was in a gorge in Western Menorca. We were on this kind of like walk and there were just these towering walls of stone, far taller than any building. And it was completely void of all people. And similarly, again, in Hawaii, these huge towering volcanoes, massive natural structures. And it can almost make you feel quite insignificant, really. You know, when you're stood at the bottom of this grand mountain, when you're stood there just kind of thinking, wow, okay, this is just a fragment of the earth and I'm stood here and I'm about this tall. But rather than us feeling insignificant, God takes us to the wilderness for a purpose. He wants us to learn that although we're small, we are not insignificant. And I just want to get your thoughts. What kind of differences are there between the two words? If, you know, if you said to someone you're small, or if you said to someone you're insignificant, what kind of, what kind of thoughts and feelings would each one um, like evoke for you guys? I think insignificant can almost seem more personal. Like if you call someone small, like it's not, I know personally, I wouldn't take it as the end of the world. Like I'm not the tallest person. So, um, but if you call them insignificant, I think it's a lot more hurtful in the sense it's more of an attack on like who you are rather than just like, I know I take small being height. Isn't like, yeah. So it's more like who you are rather than what you are. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I feel a bit like what Matt said, like small, I would take more physically, like as in like you describe an object as small, but then like if you're talking emotionally, you'd say like insignificant. So it's a lot more emotional, like Matt said, like it would hurt you a bit more. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, yes, you both kind of hit it bang on there. Um, and yeah, the good news is that though we are small, we are not insignificant no matter what we might feel like, no matter you know what's happened, what's happening, that though we are small and only human, we are actually not insignificant. If we look back to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 10, verse 14 to 15, it reads, To the Lord belong the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet 
the Lord your God set his affection on you. That phrase, set his affection on you, you can kind of see like a father talking to a son. He's like, I have set my affection onto you. And that's pretty, that's pretty sobering, really, to think that the great creator God, who is immeasurably powerful and wonderful, chooses to love each one of us personally and wants to get to know us on a deep and personal level. He has set his affection on us. That even though we are small, we are not insignificant and that we are much loved by the creator God. And through this, we kind of get a response to exchange our obsession with worldly things for worship, for our creator. We exchange our pride for humility. In the wilderness, we get a chance to unburden our souls. It says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. So that's the kind of perspective that we're going into this passage with. Uh, we're just looking at, yeah, kind of like that experience and how Jesus himself went through that. So looking back to last week, there was a uh, man called John the Baptist and he preached with passion and zeal and offered a chance to reconnect with God, you know, talking about repent and be baptized, how the Messiah is coming and he will baptize with Holy Spirit and fire. And while John is important, he just paves the way. He alludes to Jesus, who is a far greater in the earlier passage, how, you know, Jesus will come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, whereas John only baptized with water. And while baptism in water is great, you know, it's, it's a fantastic cleansing and purification and symbolism behind it is really quite powerful. With God and through God, we can be baptized in the spirit of God. You know, through this spirit, as said in Isaiah 32, 15, when the spirit is poured out from on high, the wilderness will become a fertile field and that field will yield crops. And these crops are bountiful. So just looking at that imagery, what do you think that be talking about? Like, you know, all this talk about fields, crops, how does that relate to us in our lives? What do you guys think? We have our time to flourish, but soon we'll perish. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, you kind of got that idea that we have, yeah, we have a time to, to grow and produce great fruit, but that, you know, ultimately we are, we are all human. Um, yeah, that's really nice. No, thank you. Anything else? It'd be like a metaphor. So it's like fields could be like the community and then the crops could be the people. And like we kind of grow together. I don't know why I thought that. It's probably like completely wrong, but. Yeah, no, that's all right. I was thinking like, you know, as like the field, like people, you know, the crops grow and then they're removed. And I guess that like in our lives, you know, with friends or family, we grow with the grow with them and there's you know we yeah we lose them or whatever happens but like there's always that constant there's always like the, the field is always the constant in our lives so i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah no so some really nice really nice thoughts there so just touching on becca's thought yeah so basically i think what this verse in isaiah is talking about is how we are the you know we as you say like we are the field we are the crops 
and these crops will yield fruit. Uh, as Paul talked about, you know, you have the fruits of the spirit and how, you know, with the Holy Spirit, we um, we can be productive and active witnesses to Christ in completing the mission and spreading his good news. Um, and we will yield all the things that Paul lists in the fruits of the spirit. So it's quite encouraging because, you know, looking at that verse, it's not like you've got this field which has been, you know, carefully tended for ages and ages. Like, no, it's a wilderness. But from that wilderness, God can produce something amazing. He can produce crops. So I guess that's just really some encouragement that if you feel like, you know, a wilderness, completely barren, stripped of any life, you know, God can use you and transform you like in Isaiah, like in Genesis at the start of time, he can transform you into a beautiful garden. Now, again, still looking back in chapter three, 21 through 23, talking about Jesus's baptism. Jesus was baptized, not because he sinned. Yeah, not because he needed purifying from that in any way, because we know that he was perfect. He was completely God, completely human and completely perfect. But he was baptized because he became human and he knew what it was like to live on this earth to, you know, undergo temptation. Jesus is saying that, you know, basically, like I stand with you, not momentarily, but eternally. It's not like a tourist taking a selfie in the slum in the Philippines in a momentary, solitary moment of, you know, solidarity. But he's actually saying, look, I stand with you for all of eternity because he is God with human flesh. He is God's son. And he is his only son. This part of his baptism is really talking about, you know, you can kind of get links back to when Abraham was called to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. You get parallels here, how God is giving his only son. And it all comes together in this wonderful coronation service, which, you know, echoes the Old Testament in sublime imagery. How Jesus comes to fight for justice bringing us another exodus for all humanity for all peoples regardless of race regardless of where you're from or your past he comes to bring you salvation it says in luke verse 21 that all people were baptized and it's no wonder because jesus can give us a new beginning he gives us a new start through him we have that chance to move on from the past and start afresh in a new and bountiful life with God, which sounds pretty amazing. Looking at the wilderness, we know that God can transform wilderness to life and that Jesus's baptism with the spirit gives us life. And this stirs hopes and dreams within us, you know, of a world where there's no more weeping or pain, Revelation 21, 4. But do we dare believe it? You know, we know that evil things happen in this world loved ones fall and pass is it really possible to have this new beginning and that's when we have to go back again to look at why luke is writing this book and when this is being written so you know luke is writing this for the early church approximately 62 a.d and this was the time of nero who persecuted christians viciously if we look at the account of tacitus a roman historian he writes about Nero covering Christians in the hides of wild animals and throwing them to packs of dogs. You know, I'm sure many of you will know the stories of the Colosseum, of 
Nero throwing in crowds of Christians to be eaten by lions just for his entertainment. So you can almost imagine the early church asking this, that, you know, is Jesus enough? Is, you know, is this guy who we're reading about, is he God enough to lead us? And this is where we actually come onto the passage for today, looking at Luke 4, because the only way to assess a leader is through testing. And Luke gives us a thorough account in this passage that we've just read. As we can see in 4.1, immediately after this wonderful coronation ceremony of chapter 3, Jesus is straight out into the wilderness. It says, you know, he's full of the Holy Spirit. He left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. You can kind of imagine he almost comes straight up out the water and then is just gone. He's just driven straight into the wild. And it's quite interesting. You'd think, okay, this great saviour of the world, surely he'd be driven to the heart of political power in a bulletproof limousine. But we don't see that. We actually see Jesus driven into the wilderness for 40 days. And this time of 40 days, it again harks back to the Old Testament. We immediately think of Israel, God's people, in the desert for 40 years after coming out of Egypt. Or more aptly, Israel's leader. Moses spent 40 days on Mount Sinai praying for mercy on the Israelites who had time and time again turned away from God. And at that very moment, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, when he was praying for mercy on the Israelites, they were at the bottom worshipping a golden cow. This same 40 days we see again through the journey of Elijah. He journeyed to Mount Sinai and again he spent 40 days praying for God's people. So therefore it's clear that Jesus went into the wilderness to pray for us and just to spend time almost just talking things through to talk through what he's got coming up for him in the future. And during this time he is tested by Satan. So he's tested three times. This is only three examples. Realistically, there were probably more. And it's all to try and crack Jesus, to try and make him give up this seemingly impossible mission. And this is not some kind of virtual creation in Jesus' head. This is real life. Jesus was in mortal danger. If we jump back to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 13, it says that Jesus was with the wild animals. And again, looking back at the context when this was written, it's clear to see the images that would have been evoked in the readers' minds of Nero and the Colosseum. They would have been very vivid. And it's probably apparent that these wild animals were with Satan. They weren't just any wild animals. It was probably a part of another test. And that, you know, Jesus knew what it was like to be encircled, entrapped and tempted. We can see that he's tempted here three times. Um, so he hasn't eaten. And he's like, you know... If you can, if you're so great, if you're the son of man, um, turn these stones into bread. And I'm just going to briefly look through the, the three temptations and kind of like what they mean and how we can almost apply them to areas of our own lives. So I think the first temptation is all about just trusting God and trusting that he will provide for us no matter what. And that he knows what is right for us, you know, because, you know, we might think that we need this but in reality god has it all planned out and we just need to make sure that we're putting him above anything else the second one the devil is talking about you know if you worship me i'll give you everything like all these kingdoms you know of all the world and jesus replied it is written worship the lord your god and serve him only 
So this, you know, obviously links back to Ten Commandments, that you should have no other gods but me, because obviously that was written at a time when people worshipped lots of different gods. You had God for this or God for that, and there were loads of different people, and God was saying, no, look, I am the one true God. But I think from a kind of more 21st century perspective, it's just showing that we should put God first in our lives, no matter what. We should put him above the desire for wealth, uh, the desire for power, for popularity, even above, you know, love for hobbies, love for family, that we need to put God first. And when we put him first, everything else will align and fall into place. Now, the third one is talking about not testing God. And this one is, you know, it's kind of looking at, like, do we trust God with everything? Are we kind of doubting him? And I think it's just really important to have that confidence that, you know, that God has got us, that he loves us so much that he sent his only son to die for us and that we can, that we can take confidence in that. And this account of Jesus in the wilderness, it's not saying that, you know, life is going to be great, that we're never going to face hardships. In reality, what it's saying is that, yes, we will face temptation and wild animals. We may face persecution but that we're never alone, that God is always with us. And if we look at the end of this passage, Luke 4.13, it says, then Satan left him until an opportune time. So even though he might have left him then, his opposition stayed throughout Jesus's life. You know, you have the Pharisees constantly trying to berate him and just other bits and pieces. Like he was there up to a point. And that point was the cross where God's son was sacrificed for us. He lived a blameless and perfect life. And on the cross, he died the punishment that we were due so that we could enter into into eternal life and into a relationship with our loving creator, God. It's written in Mark 10.45 that the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the cross really just clearly highlights that, how that as he died, he cried, it is finished almost like a yes, like a victory cry. And rightly so, because this is good news. This is incredibly good news because on the cross, God's profound love poured out onto us sinners, but God still chose to do the unthinkable and send his son to die for us. So now going back to my earlier question, is Jesus God enough to lead us? Absolutely. There can be no doubt about it. And this is the gospel that we can now, through Jesus's life, death and resurrection, we can now walk with God. You know, in those times when we're trapped, when we're in the wilderness, just lean into Jesus and allow him to give you a new beginning and a fresh start. Really refocus your life and clean up of everything that's kind of just built up there, that we have a God who wants that deep and personal relationship with us and if you wonder sometimes while we're in the wild and if you haven't tried turning to jesus he's taking you there to get your attention to offer you a new life and a new beginning we can come to him and lay our sins down at his feet and seek forgiveness jesus can give us this new start this new beginning you know this offer of a new life and a new beginning is as much for your life as it is for mine we can do this through just coming to him laying our sins down at his feet and just seeking forgiveness 
we can just do this through a simple prayer, which I'm actually just going to pray now. And if if anything that I've said over the last 30, 40 minutes has spoken to you, then I just invite you just to say this in your own mind, say it in your own heart, and just know that Jesus is God enough, crowned and tested to give you a new start. Dear Jesus, thank you for coming to save me through your death and resurrection. I repent of my sin and turn away, and I ask you to be the Lord of my life. I look forward to the day we will meet face to face. Amen. So yeah, just remember that no matter what's happened, no matter what's happening, no matter where you might be right now, no matter where you may have been or where you may go in the future, that God will always be there. He will always be with you. And that Jesus is God enough. We just need to listen and stay close. Thank you.